Hey everybody, welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. Uh, I'm your host, as always, Kerry Parker, and we've got a wonderful interview show for you today. We're going to be talking with Nathan Freed Wessler. He is from the American Civil Liberties Union, otherwise known as the ACLU. Uh, he is a lawyer there, and we're going to talk about some work that they're doing uh, and some interesting stories around mobile privacy. Um, it turns out that uh, Google's not just used to find stuff online, that Google can also be used to find suspects in crimes. And if you wonder what I mean by that, just stay tuned, because we'll be talking with Nate about it right now. All right, today we have the pleasure of speaking with Nathan Freed Wessler. Nate is a staff attorney at the ACLU's Speech, Privacy, and Technology Project, where he works on surveillance and privacy issues, including government searches of electronic devices, requests for sensitive data held by third parties, and use of surveillance technologies. Welcome. Thanks so much. Uh, so I live in Raleigh, the, the Raleigh, North Carolina area, and I just read an article recently from uh, WRAL, which is our local TV, one of our big local TV stations here, uh, where you were quoted, um, which led to this interview. And the article is about how the Raleigh police are basically turning to Google to solve crimes, apparently ones where they're maybe having a hard time identifying suspects and or witnesses. So how does one use Google to solve crimes exactly? Can you walk us through that? Yeah, sure. Uh, so this is the story that you're talking about is sort of the latest iteration in what has now become a long history of police turning to uh, to not only Google, but lots of our uh, data providers, our, our companies that handle our email and our phone and all the other services we use to try to collect evidence. Uh, so what we're looking at with these Google warrants is something uh, a little new. It's a new twist and raises some particularly... Uh, worrisome concerns about the nature of our, our privacy, but the basic issue is, is not new, uh, which is that you know we now live in a world when uh, some of our most sensitive data isn't held in our own filing cabinets in our house, but is held by the companies that we have relationships with. Uh, so in these investigations in North Carolina, uh, police were trying to, uh, to find a suspect. They didn't have a, an actual named suspect yet. They had a crime. Uh, there were a couple of homicides, there was a big arson uh, and uh, an assault case, I think, where in the course of trying to figure out who might have done it, uh, where their leads were pretty thin, they went to a judge and got uh, a warrant or a set of warrants for these different crimes to then send to Google, asking Google to search through the location records of its users uh, and to identify any of its users whose phones or other devices were within a specified geographical area during a, a one or two or three hour time frame around the time of the crime. Uh, now, this is, you know, this is the kind of a request that we've seen lots of times in the past directed at cell phone companies, mm. uh, which keep a lot of records about uh, which cell towers a, a phone is talking to at any given time. Um, I had never before seen this kind of a, what I'll call a reverse location request to Google, uh, but it, it makes sense uh, in that Google uh, is retaining a huge trove of information about where our devices have been in the past. Uh, certainly that's true for people using Android phones, Google's operating system, um, but also people who are on an iPhone or a, another uh, type of phone who are using some of Google's products, like, uh, for example, Google Maps. Uh, a lot of that data, uh, as a default matter, ends up getting saved on Google servers uh, for potentially a very long period of time, uh, and they apparently have the ability 
to not only search by an individual person's name, but also to do this kind of reverse search uh, based on a particular geographic area. So, and, and I don't know if all the people are aware, but uh, Waze, which is a very popular uh, app for navigation and traffic and things like that, is also owned by Google. That's correct? Yeah, that that's right. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I don't know what Google's policies are, particularly around you know, how long they retain location data generated by Waze or by Google Maps or some of their other services. But I, uh, my understanding is that it is for quite a long time, uh, unless somebody goes into their own settings uh, and changes the default to uh, to limit how much information is saved. So, since you're a lawyer, let's talk about some of the legal aspects of this. You you actually, I believe, argued a similar case in front of the Supreme Court regarding the cell tower location data. How is what is the legal foundation for this, such a broad warrant? You know, you know, according to the Constitution, the whole point was that warrants are supposed to be kind of targeted things. Obviously, I guess if you don't know the suspect's name, that, that, that causes some issues. But this is what you know looks like dragnet surveillance. It looks like overly broad. Um, so what are, what are the, what's the legal foundation for this? What, what are they, how do they claim that they have the right to, to gather this sorts of information? Yeah, it's a really key question. And there are, are a couple of moving parts here. Uh, so in this case, or in this set of cases, police actually got a search warrant based on probable cause from a judge. Uh, and that's, you know, the minimum that they should be doing, although there are still some questions that I'll talk about in a minute about whether these warrants are even valid because of how broad they are. Um, but what's interesting is that in all of these warrants from North Carolina, the police or the prosecutor provides a footnote that says, uh, we actually don't think we're required to get a search warrant to get this data, but Google is insisting on a warrant. And since we think we have probable cause anyway, uh, we're just going to go uh, go through this warrant procedure. Um, you know, reading between the lines, uh, Google is, you know, insisting on a better practice here uh, and good, good for them for doing that. Uh, and police, uh, I take it, don't want to test their luck by trying to litigate whether or not they actually need a search warrant, uh, since I think the, the law would be going against them in this context of very precise GPS uh, data, although it's not a totally settled Question. So the, that underlying question of whether a warrant is even needed at all, that's what's at issue in the Supreme Court case that I argued. The, the case is called Carpenter v. United States. Um, and that dealt with a, a related but, but somewhat distinct issue of when police know who the suspect is. They have a name and a cell phone number. They want to go to the cell phone company to get someone's historical cell phone location records. Uh, in the Carpenter case itself, police were investigating a series of robberies in the Detroit area. Uh, back in 2010 and 2011, uh, and they arrested um, a couple of guys who they thought were involved in the string of robberies of, uh, ironically, there were robberies of cell phone stores, of T-Mobile stores <laughs> and Radio Shacks uh, around Detroit. Uh, one of the guys they arrested quickly flipped and gave the names and cell phone numbers of a bunch of other people who he said were involved in some or all of these robberies. Um, and one of those people was Timothy Carpenter, who became our client. Mm. Uh, and so police um, went to a, a judge. Uh, they tur turned the case over to the FBI. The FBI uh, agent worked with a federal prosecutor to go to a, a federal judge and get a court order, but not a search warrant, a court order mm. on a much lower, easier to get legal standard based on uh, a law from 1986 that Congress passed uh, that has not kept up with you know, changes in digital mm. technology in the cell phone age. So they got this very easy to get court order that they then sent to uh, Mr. Carpenter's cell phone company 
asking for five months worth of his historical cell site location records. Wow. Uh, and, and the company sent back uh, about four months of records, uh, totaling nearly 13,000 individual location points. That's about 101 location points per day. Wow. Uh, and then the police uh, or the FBI trolled through those, and lo and behold, they were able to uh, placed him at the scenes of four of those robberies at the times of the robberies, which then became key evidence for them at trial. Um, but you know, our concern with that case is that uh, they got it's huge trove of sensitive information about everywhere this man had gone over the course of four months. When we looked at the data, we were able to tell you know which nights he slept at home and which nights he slept in another neighborhood in Detroit, uh, which can be quite private. Mm -hmm. Obviously, we were able to tell uh, his pattern of movements on Sunday afternoons. Uh, that lined up with uh, with the neighborhood that he went to church in, uh, and, and lots of other information about where he went and when. And, and so the the question in that case is, you know, under the Fourth Amendment, is this the kind of sensitive personal data that should require a warrant? Uh, and the government's argument uh, is that it's not, uh, and, and they base that on this uh, old legal theory that really came of age in the 1970s in a pair of Supreme Court cases, so before the digital age, uh, that established what's often called the third-party doctrine, which is this mm -hmm. principle that uh, when a person has a relationship with a company and shares their data or information or records with that company, they've given up their reasonable expectation of right. privacy, and they shouldn't be able to complain if police go to that company to get it. Uh, so that was true in one Supreme Court case about bank records, you know, canceled checks that end up back with the bank or account statements. Uh, another case about dialed telephone numbers. So when someone on a rotary or a touchtone phone you know, dialed a number to route a call, the Supreme Court said, well, you should know you're sending that to the phone company so they can connect your call. Too bad for you if police go to the phone company to get it. Um, now, you know, those were, I, I think, dubious propositions <laughs> at the time in terms of, you know, understanding people's real right. privacy interests. But that that principle has not held up well in the digital age when we now have you know, these reams of location data held by our phone companies or by Google, our email stored in the cloud, you know, as the Internet of Things gets going, uh, so much privacy uh, intrusive information is stored by these companies that we expect to safeguard the data. Uh, so, so that's the, you know, the basic question. Do you even need a warrant for any of this stuff? And the Supreme Court will soon be answering that for us. Uh, we expect the opinion to come out in that case sometime in the next two months. Hmm. Um, but, you know, in, in these in these cases in North Carolina, there's an additional really uh, interesting and important question. You know, when when police do get a warrant. If they're asking for this kind of kind of dragnet search, right, they don't know who they're looking for. So they're asking the company to search the records of lots of people mm -hmm. to try to pin down who might be a suspect. Inevitably, most of those people are going to be uh, totally innocent bystanders. Right. And, and so the question is whether the Fourth Amendment is allowed, uh, allows a warrant that sweeps so, so broadly. And there's a real question about whether it does, uh, when the framers of the Fourth Amendment were writing the, the Bill of Rights uh, and, and that piece of it, one of their biggest concerns were what were often called general warrants, right. when British forces would get this piece of paper uh, that they called a warrant that would allow them to you know, knock down every, every door of every house in the neighborhood looking for one printer of a confidential, uh, controversial or seditious pamphlet, for example. Uh, and the, you know, the framers of the Fourth Amendment wrote in this requirement of particularity uh, 
meaning that a warrant has to specify exactly what's going to be searched and explain why there's probable cause to search for it. Uh, And that's a a tricky question that, um, and one that may invalidate some of these reverse search warrants that sweep so broadly. So a couple questions then. So uh, first of all, since do you think that the case, let's say the case, the Carpenter case in front of the Supreme Court goes your way, uh, would that have direct applicability to these Google searches as well? Could you could you easily draw that line and use that as a precedent? Uh, and second, is there any what is off limits, if anything, with these things? I guess I hadn't I'd missed the distinction where it wasn't even necessarily a warrant; it was just a court order. So I'm not even sure if there you know a Fourth Amendment applies in that case. So you know normally with a warrant, you know the classic case is you know you get a warrant to search a house in a specific drawer of a certain thing, and along the way you notice a you know, a, a hi-fi system that was, wow, that's an old term, <laughs> a, a stereo system that was, that was, uh, matches one, a description of one that was stolen, but you can't, you can't use the fact that you noticed that walking by to get something else because it's not part of your warrant. So you, obviously Google has a ton of data on, on everybody, not just their location. So if they're providing this data, they may, you know, along with that, get a ton more metadata. Is there, and uh, uh, one more thing, the, the NSA often uses the, the thing where, yeah, sure, we hoover up all this data, but we don't look at it. <laughs> so it's okay. You know, so how do they justify that? Is there any limits to what the, what this information could be? And again, is this applicable maybe for the Google cases if you win the Carpenter case? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so the, you know, the Carpenter case, um, it, it depends how the Supreme Court writes the opinion. And there are, you know, many ways they could write it more or less broadly. Uh, and, and we'll just have to see. But the, because police got search warrants in uh, that they sent to Google and in these cases we're talking about uh, the Carpenter case is unlikely to directly answer the question of whether these warrants are too broad since since the question in Carpenter is really you know do you need a warrant at all mm-hmm. is this stuff private uh, and is it so private that we should you know I- ignore or depart from those old 1970s cases that say just because a company has it means the Fourth Amendment doesn't apply right. Uh, so that you know, that's a crucial question uh, that will have ramifications for our digital privacy in lots of important ways. But it probably won't answer this question of whether these Google warrants were overbroad. Um, now, on the second part of your your question, uh, that's a it's a really key issue when we come to digital searches, which is you know how do you think about cabining the scope of these searches so that our traditional notions of particularity and probable cause and a reasonable scope of a warrant don't just erode by virtue of the fact that, you know, digital storage drives and servers hold, you know, incredible volumes mm. of records, right? The equivalence of, you know, thousands of, of feet of library shelving, you know, or, or more, right? The, I mean, it almost becomes impossible to think of like pre-digital analogs right. to describe the volume of that data. Um, you know, one of the interesting things about these Google warrants is that they, they, uh, do include some safeguards to try to avoid police getting a, a an unfair windfall <laughs> during this search. Uh, now, it's unclear how effective those safeguards are, um, and I'm guessing that they were, this was part of what Google insisted on, but there's a what we often call a minimization procedure mm-hmm. um, written into these warrants where, uh, in some of them at least, what's supposed to happen is that police you know, get the warrant, send it to Google, uh, and and then what Google sends back at first is a set of uh, of anonymized 
information about which devices were in the geographic area around the time. So they assign some kind of you know, numerical identifier mm. to each of the accounts, but not the names or huh. other you know, subscriber information. And then police are supposed to look at that and then try, if they can, to narrow down a subset that they're interested in. And then they go back to Google and say, okay, for this subset, can you give us an extra half hour at the front end and half hour at the back end of location data so we can kind of see if any of these people, you know, fit the, the MO of the person we think might have mm-hmm. uh, done this crime. And then they look at that and then they can go back to Google and say, okay, for this person or set of people, we want you to give us their actual identifying information because we think they actually are suspects. Um, you know, that's, that's a better practice for sure than just getting the names and addresses, mm-hmm. et cetera, of all the people at the front end. Um, but it's, it's hard to know how effective that will be. And, you know, at the end of the day, it, it could end up that police demand, you know, a bunch of stuff from Google uh, about multiple people. Uh, this is, you know, an issue that um, comes up in a similar way when we're talking about searches of people's laptops or desktop computers or even their cell phones. Uh, so the Supreme Court made clear a few years ago uh, that um, a search warrant is virtually always required to search somebody's cell phone or by extension, you know, any any computing device, laptop, computer, et cetera. Um, and that's great and important. But what courts are still sorting through is how to limit the scope of those searches uh, in light of what's called the plain view doctrine, which is that principle you were describing where, you know, in the in the kind of physical world, right, if you have a search warrant to go into someone's house uh, and the search warrant says, you know, you're allowed to search for uh, firearms and drugs, for example, mm-hmm. then police can, you know, in that house, they can search any part of the house where it's reasonable that a firearm or drugs might be hidden, right? So closets, large drawers, uh, you know, under the coffee table. Mm -hmm. And if they see anything in plain view uh, in those places that they're allowed to be searching that is itself illegal or evidence of illegality, they're allowed to seize that. And and that um, is going to generally be okay to come into court as evidence. Uh, So, you know, if they're looking for drugs on the coffee table and they see... uh, you know, something that is obviously a stolen stereo, they can take that. Now, they're not allowed to pick up the stereo and look underneath it uh, to see if it's mm. stolen, you know, look at its um, serial number. Right. Uh, that exceeds this, the scope of what's in plain view. Um, but they can get quite a lot. Uh, what's so dangerous about that principle in the digital age is that, you know, if you have a warrant to search a computer looking for evidence of tax fraud, but you feel like you have to look at every Excel spreadsheet and every <laughs> Word document to see you're going to see a lot of stuff that has nothing to do with that crime and it is so private. And so judges have started to try to think about how to write in protections to eliminate that danger of the plain view doctrine or require separate teams of investigators to do the first search and then only turn over the really relevant stuff. Uh, Those can all be good solutions. So in the physical world, again, when when these sorts of things are seized by law enforcement and kept as evidence, uh, I assume that at some point, especially if someone is acquitted, that the evidence is, I guess, returned. Um, you know, maybe if it's an ongoing case, it's kept. But in the digital world, there's no really notion of returning, right? It's a copy of something. How long? So how long can this data be saved? And with whom? Get, with whom could it be shared? I mean, if if they've got, 
you know, the NSA, like, again, I keep coming back to that, but that, you know, they always talk about, they, they hoover up all this data. And I, I think there's like some time limit on how much that, how long they can save it. But then they, they get around that by saying, well, until we actually look at it, the clock doesn't start ticking. Right. So just the fact that it's on the hard drive doesn't mean we've looked at it yet. Um, so are there any laws around how long they can retain this massive treasure trove of data about other people that were not necessarily suspects and with whom they could share that data? Yeah, the the protections are not nearly strong enough. You know, they vary a little by context and by which agency is collecting the information. Uh, so the the DEA's rules may be different than the FBI's, different than the NSA's. Um, but uh, but often, if they've you know if they've collected something through a warrant or other legal process that they think is adequate uh, for a case, um, often that information is going to be saved for a very long time. Uh, a, a few years ago, uh, an investigative reporter um, in Virginia uh, uncovered this uh, incredible database that police in the Hampton Roads area of Virginia um, were dumping all of the digital data that they obtained through search warrants and subpoenas and other forms of legal process and investigations. All that stuff was getting dumped into this database. So then police from this set of departments could you know, any time in the future in any investigation mm. without a warrant or any further action from a judge could dip back into it and see, uh, you know, what might be there that was interesting or incriminating, mm -hmm. uh, et cetera. And that, that's a huge concern because, oh, yeah. uh, you know, you're now um, really providing police with this time machine effect, right? right. They, now it, at, at their whim, they can dip back into what is probably... Uh, in many cases, highly sensitive private information that they would need a search warrant to get in the first instance. But uh, but now in a totally different investigation, they're just uh, jumping around uh, looking to see what they might be able to find. And that's you know, that's exactly the kind of thing that the framers of the Fourth Amendment wanted to avoid. Yeah, I mean, whenever I talk to people about the internet, and I like my daughters particularly, you know, I tell them assume the internet is forever. Yeah, you know, if you if you've posted something digitally anywhere or sent it through an email or just assume that that will last forever and that could come back at any point in your life or after. Um, yeah, and yeah. and so we we have we have the situation where this stuff, like you said, it's like a time machine. This stuff is last forever, and, I, and so I, I you know like when I teach my class, I ask people, "Have you ever committed a crime?" I'm not talking about got caught. <laughs> have you ever done anything illegal? Because it's not, it's not so a matter of, you know, most people, like if they do the thing illegal and by, they make it till tomorrow, they're okay. <laughs> you know, that's yep, not true anymore. Yep. Okay. So what, the other, yeah, absolutely true. And, you know, well, you know, a lot of, of this now, right. Puts us at the whim of the policies of private companies, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, as you're saying the, you know, it, it used to be that we, you know, we had a filing cabinet and, uh, you know, a stack of VHS tapes, et cetera, in our homes. And if we wanted to get rid of something, we knew how to do that. You put it in the shredder, you toss it out. Um, but now, you know, AT&T, for example, keeps five years worth of every customer's cell phone location records. That's just their policy. Uh, and uh, which means that if, you know, four years from now, police decide that they uh, think maybe I was up to some funny business, uh, they can take that time machine back by getting those records from Google. And, and there's absolutely nothing that I can do about it. So one of the questions that, that, that we have to ask in cases like this that I think that oftentimes gets missed is, you know, how effective actually is this tool? Like, do we act, has this actually resulted in getting bad guys? Because I worry that, um, you know, some of these things are just, I, want, I don't want necessarily there were conscious pretexts to hoover up information, but as a happy circumstance, 
by going through this, they did manage to get a whole bunch of data they could throw in a hopper somewhere that may be valuable later. So, you know, but so all that hinges on the fact of whether or not this thing was was worthwhile in the first place. So like, for instance, in these North Carolina cases, do we know, did these techniques actually yield suspects? Did they actually solve cases based on this? Or, you know, is this just kind of a snipe hunt that, that unfortunately manages to gather a, a ton of information on people? Yeah. So I, I don't know. Uh, what we do know about the North Carolina cases is that in at least one of them, one of the homicide cases, police have a uh, someone that they arrested and that they are now moving towards prosecution of. Um, it's unclear, though, whether these Google records were actually what you know broke the case for them or whether it was other types of data. Uh, and the you know we have yet to get to the pretrial hearings in that case to to hear from the defense team you know what their arguments will be about what there might be to suppress uh, or not uh, in terms of potential Fourth Amendment violations. Um, but it it does you know raise this question of. When police are, you know, are without a name suspect yet, just trying to get a handle on who might have been near the scene of the crime, uh, you know, in some of these cases, they aren't able to make any kind of a assertion that there was somebody there who even had a cell phone, right, or that a cell phone was used in the crime. So in, in a couple of those North Carolina warrants, they actually had witnesses who said, oh, we saw we saw the person running away from the scene of the crime, um, you know, talking on a cell phone or uh, we saw what looked like a cell phone flashlight, um, you know, looking around uh, out before the person fled. Uh, and so, you know, at least that's some indication that maybe there's going to be a record there. Um, but they don't even have that in, in all of these cases. Uh, and uh, when you're talking about these kind of reverse searches, you don't know and, and they don't know ahead of time what they'll find, which makes... Uh, at the very least, makes it crucial that there are strong mm -hmm. limits on collection and retention of all the information that turns out not to be related to a suspect. And, and that's true in lots of areas of digital searches where, you know, not only do we need a warrant, but we need that warrant to do things that we've seldom need warrants to do before, which is to specify, uh, you know, exactly how the search is to be carried out and how to protect all the the evidence that turns out to be totally unrelated to the crime, uh, you know, how fast to delete it, how to wall it off from future investigations, uh, how to give notice to all those innocent people so they know that their information was was captured. Uh, these are all, uh, you know, new questions in the digital age that are really crucial. And so I want to uh, broaden this out a little bit because I don't I think a lot of people aren't really aware of the, the numerous ways that we can be tracked and it's getting worse. Um, so I just like to tick off a few <laughs> off the top of my head that, that I'm aware of. And, and I'd like to get your take on, on some of these things, but for, for the cell phone is just an amazing tracking device. So basically anything that has a radio in it, anything that's got wireless technology could be used in reverse to track somebody. So your cell phone not only has a cellular radio in it, it's almost surely got Wi-Fi. It's got, NFC, which is near field communication. It's got Bluetooth. Uh, even the speakers and the microphones through ultrasonic signals can be used to, to, to determine your whereabouts or identify you. And that's just your cell phone. And then we, now we need to start talking about things like automated license plate readers. Um, these, these little cameras with computers that cops are, are sometimes often third parties will, will mount on vehicles and they'll just drive around town, go through parking lots, taking pictures of every license plate they find 
and noting when and where they found it, uh, you know, of toll booth scanners, um, public cameras combined with uh, fa- facial recognition. There's the, I don't even know if it's, it seems so apocryphal, but the story from China about catching some criminal in a crowd of 50,000 people based on his face. <laughs> so the, the, the technological ways in which we can be tracked are just mushrooming. And what are, you know, can you talk a little bit about all the different ways we we're being tracked? And is there anything we can do legally about these things? Are, are the is the government aware of these things? Are they are they trying to get ahead of this? They they always seem to be behind it. Yeah. So uh, you're absolutely right. The you know the numbers of technologies that allow for detailed precise and pervasive location tracking are, you know, constantly growing and, uh, and quote unquote, improving in their accuracy. Uh, and, you know, some of these are technologies that we get a lot of benefit from ourselves. Oh, yeah. right? The, you know, the GPS function on our smartphone has meant that, you know, we can get places and use services in easy and convenient and sometimes really fun and surprising ways uh, that just never existed, you know, a decade ago. Um, but the flip side of that is that uh, both companies and the government uh, can have access to an incredible uh, and detailed account of where we've been in the past uh, and where we are at the current moment and can you know, track us in real time uh, over time. Uh, the legal protections against these kinds of tracking uh, are underdeveloped, um, but there, that's not to say that there haven't been really important advances in the last several years. Um, chief among those was a, a Supreme Court case from 2012 called United States versus Jones, which was about uh, what the Fourth Amendment has to say when police surreptitiously put a GPS tracker on the undercarriage of a suspect's mm-hmm. car uh, and then use it to track that person. And in that case, it was over about a month, uh, 28 days. Uh, and police, um, they'd actually gone to a judge and gotten a warrant, but then they had let the warrant expire, and then they had attached the GPS tracker uh, in a different jurisdiction that the warrant wouldn't have even uh, allowed them to do anyway. So it was as if they had no warrant. Uh, and the defense attorney uh, then challenged that that tracking evidence, saying this is you know really sensitive. Uh, you should have had to get a warrant. Uh, and the Supreme Court agreed, and actually a unanimous opinion. Uh, well, two, two sets of, of opinions that reached the same outcome, but for different reasons. But the, the court uh, held that when you uh, use uh, a GPS tracker attached to a car to, uh, to track someone's location over time, uh, that's a search that requires a warrant. Uh, now, to, to reach that conclusion, that there were um, two different rationales, and it's actually important to understand what they are to know to be able to think about you know, how we might be protected against these other kinds of location tracking. So one half of the court said, well, the Fourth Amendment regulates this because this was actually a trespass by police on your private property. They put this magnetic GPS tracker on your car without your permission. So they trespassed on your property and they Mm -hmm. did it in order to collect information. uh, And that's something that the Fourth Amendment uh, has always been concerned about, this Mm -hmm. imposition on, on both privacy and property. And so it's a search. Um, another half of the court said yeah, that's kind of a silly, trivial rationale, particularly because there are all these other technologies out there that don't require a magnetic attachment, right? For example, cell phone location mm. tracking. Uh, and so we should think about this in terms of privacy principles. Uh, and you know, never before in human history have police had this ability yeah. to 
you know, basically track you 24 hours a day, seven days a week, week upon week, without ever sleeping, without ever changing shifts, without fueling up the car, the police car to <laughs> keep on your tail. Right. Right. This is just it's so much easier and it is so lower the cost of surveillance that it just changes the calculus in terms of privacy invasion uh, and the Fourth Amendment should should regulate it. Right. Uh, and go ahead. I was just going to say that what I think a distinction that's that's missed is there was kind of a natural back before all these tracking technologies around there was a natural limit just on time and resources uh, for these things that you know if the if the FBI or law enforcement wanted to you know uh, trail somebody or bug somebody they actually had to get in the game do some shoe leather work you know take a risk of being caught you know uh, if they're planning a bug or, or or if they're following you or whatever and you know just that would naturally limit how much of this stuff could actually happen just because they only have so much time and money and, and people. Uh, that is no longer the case. That's absolutely right. And that was really, you know, one of the rationales that was underlying that second opinion. It, it was a concurring opinion by Justice Alito, which also shows that these are not necessarily, you know, issues that break down along traditional political partisan lines, um, where he, he was explaining exactly that, that, uh, you know, part of our traditional expectations of privacy have revolved around these practical considerations, right? Did we, you know, sure, we might expect that police or a nosy neighbor would follow us around for a relatively short period of time. Uh, you know, you could imagine a, you know, in a really in important investigation being trailed for a couple of, of shifts worth of, of police time even. Um, but, but it would be virtually unheard of for police to be able to muster the resources and the overtime hours and the number of officers, right, to actually trail you for this long period of time. And that's that's true of lots of these technologies. Yeah. Uh, they just open up a totally new capability that really destabilizes the practical protections that have often made the difference between, you know, living a life with some reasonable sphere of privacy and living a life that has become a total open book to government investigators. Uh, now you wrote you wrote an article recently too about another technology called uh, stingrays. Tell me a little bit about what that is and and is that how that relates to the discussion so far? Yeah, so stingrays are, are uh, it's a trade name for one model of this technology that's more generically sometimes called a cell site simulator or an MC catcher, short for International Mobile Subscriber Identity, which is what one of the persistent serial numbers for cell phones are called. Uh, but these Stingray devices are used by police to very precisely track and locate phones. And they do that by, uh, by mimicking the function of a real cell phone tower. So these are devices that are usually put in the back of a police car with a, a powerful directional antenna that goes up on top. Um, although there are smaller versions that are uh, handheld uh, and can be carried around on foot. And they send out a signal that says to phones in the area, hey, I'm an AT&T tower or hey, I'm a Sprint tower. Uh, they're not, of course. They're a device owned and operated by police without the cooperation of the cell phone companies. But what they do is by sending that signal out, they force all the phones in the area to transmit back their unique electronic serial number, their identifier, which is what those phones are used to sending to the real phone network so the network knows where to find them so it can efficiently route calls and text messages. Uh, and then the, you have this Stingray device uh, moving around as police drive or walk around a neighborhood, uh, downloading a list of all the phones in the area, uh, and then looking for the serial number of a particular suspect's phone. Uh, and then once that's located, uh, police can hone in uh, quite precisely on where that phone is, uh, including 
you know, inside of houses or offices or apartment buildings. I've seen cases where police using a stingray were able to identify, you know, behind which window of a large uh, apartment block uh, a suspect's phone was or uh, in which house on a, on a street uh, or find a person sitting in a parked car on the side of a busy street in Washington, D.C., uh, as was the case in, in a recent case decided by a, an appeals court in D.C. Uh, so it's very powerful uh, and precise technology, but technology that raises some of those same concerns we were talking about mm-hmm. earlier about dragnet surveillance, right? You're, yeah. you're getting not just information about where the suspect is, but information about all the people who are nearby who have absolutely nothing to do with your investigation. Right. So, you know, one of the common responses that, that I seem to hear with these things is, well, you know, if you don't like this stuff, just turn it off. You know, don't don't use your cell phone or don't use Wi-Fi or don't use these these wonderful new de- new technologies. Just, you know, go back to the Stone Age, basically. Is that a, you know, is that a valid response really today? I mean, it, can you really expect people at this point to say, to, to deny themselves all these technological wonders in, in the name of their own privacy? Is there no, it, I mean, it's really a, it's an unreasonable trade-off to ask people to to make, and, and one that is increasingly, you know, untenable. I mean, it, it's not really an option for most people. You know, I in my work, I have to have my cell phone on me so I can be available for urgent after-hours emails from my coworkers and my boss uh, or from clients, um, and, and that's true not just of lawyers, obviously, but people in yeah. lots of sectors of the economy. Um, you know, parents now rely on their cell phones to communicate with their kids or to hear from daycare providers or schools as they're moving around. People, um, you know, people need their phones to call emergency services, right? We, you know, a huge percentage now of 911 calls come from cell phones. Uh, and often that's what can be the difference between life and death. If you come upon an accident on the highway, Right. We no longer have to, you know, wait the 20 minutes while someone tries to go find uh, a payphone at a gas station. You can call 911 right away. And that's that's crucial. Yeah. Uh, so the suggestion that we somehow should just, you know, turn these phones into paperweights, throw them away, turn them off, leave them at home. Uh, you know, maybe some people will be able to do that and think it's worthwhile and more power to them if, if that's what they <laughs> want to do. But uh, that's not where we should set the default in society. And, and that's why. We really need the legal system to step in and provide protections. And that's, you know, that's a question both for courts in interpreting the Constitution, but it's also a question for state legislatures and Congress in passing statutes. Uh, And a number of states have done that around location tracking. Um, States, you know, across the spectrum from California to Utah, you know, Montana, Maine, uh, Illinois, Indiana, uh, and more have, have passed laws that say, uh, that when you know police want to track someone's cell phone, they have to go get a probable cause search warrant before they they do it. Um, so you know they're not uh, they're not walling off this data and preventing police from getting it at all. But they're saying you know we have a constitutional system, we have checks and balances. You have to observe those before you can go uh, poking around in someone's very private location data. So one of the things I I, I find kind of most interesting is this: we have basically we have this like this this diabolical uh, symbiosis symbiotic relationship between corporations and government because the government i assume uh, i would hope would is would not be allowed to collect all the amounts of data that that are currently being collected by Facebook and Google and Amazon and and yet those companies are doing it for their own you know profit and financial interests and yet now that now that a third party has basically done all the work for them 
the law enforcement can kind of walk, can walk in and say, I'll take that. <laughs> right. Yeah, Whereas yeah. They, couldn't, they couldn't have done it originally. So the, the, the issue, the, there's the legal aspects of, of uh, the constitutionality for law enforcement and these guys getting this data. But then we have the commercial aspects, the civil aspects of, I've heard it said recently, especially with, with all the Facebook debacle going on, that the issue is not so much that, um, you know, that they're sharing this data is that they collected it in the first place. You know, the fact that they're saving this data, it, it, AT&T needs to know where you are right now because that's how they get phone calls to you. But they don't need to know that for five years. That's right. Right. Um, but the reason they have that, I'm sure some of it is maybe to, uh, to, to, to be available to law enforcement should need it. But a lot of it's just for monetization. They're using this because they're building these dossiers on us. So we've got this diabolical relationship between, you know, the corporations are hoovering up all the data and then the government just walking in and taking it when they need it. Yeah, it's a really difficult dynamic to to figure out how to unravel. Yeah, uh, un, unravel. You know, AT and T, right? They they may need that for a couple of billing cycles, right. right? To you know, if there are network diagnostic issues or to deal with roaming charges between companies, uh, that might be totally reasonable. But but yeah, five years, it's hard to figure out <laughs> why they need that. And as long as they're holding it, it's it's susceptible to access by the government, and also uh, to potentially efforts to you know to monetize it. Uh, for advertising and other purposes, although there are federal laws that that limit what can be done with that kind of cell phone location data, that's not true for other kinds of data. Um, you know, as as you were saying, as we've learned uh, around this coverage of the Facebook scandals, uh, and so you know, part of the conversation uh, as as a public and and with our lawmakers really does need to be about how uh, we can. Think about placing appropriate restrictions, whether they're voluntary or they're legislated, on what these companies can be doing with our data. You know, some of this is going to be about um, transparency and disclosure and consent. So changing the defaults from share everything and keep it forever to, (laughs) you know, share only what's necessary and keep it only as long as necessary unless you opt in to something more. Uh, And that could make a huge difference in how these companies structure their servers and their storage systems. Um, and it's, you know, it's the kind of regulation that Europe is starting to move towards in very strong ways. Uh, but that yeah. here in the United States, we've been lagging behind. But, um, but I am hopeful that we're in a moment now where the conversation is starting to, to turn and where people are realizing that, you know, we are obtaining, you know, really significant benefits and conveniences from this technology. Uh, and these technologies, in many cases, look like they're free, but actually... You know, someone's making money off of them somehow, often in lots of ways, uh, and they're often doing that by you know, monetizing your privacy uh, in ways that can have lots of, uh, of negative effects. And so we need to think you know, very carefully about what the bargain is that we as a society are striking. Yeah, for sure. And the, the GDPR, the General Data Protection Regulation, um, that's about to go into effect in Europe is going to have I – ho- I hope because these are global companies, they – this is the this is the funny thing. So Google and all these companies are global companies. So in in Europe, they're going to have to implement the technologies that are required by this new data regulation that requires much more rights, data privacy rights for their users. And and it's not like that same technology couldn't be used here. But my guess is that they're not going to enable it here unless they absolutely have to, because that money is is like gold. You know, data is the new oil, as they say. Um, the other the other thing I like to bring up is is that. 
let's assume that everybody is a good actor. Let's assume that all these co- corporations and law enforcement uh, are are doing their best, their absolute best to guard our privacy and not to collect or use more data than they need to, but they, they are collecting this data. That data still now exists where it didn't exist before. So therefore, it is available to be hacked by somebody who's not uh, part of the company or not part of law enforcement, or maybe it's a maybe it's another nation state. Maybe it's um, or just you know regular old anonymous style, style hackers. This the fact that the data exists means that someone's going to want that data, and it could you know the employees, rogue employees, even if the corporation as a whole has, has policies not for abuse. You know what's to stop the the Facebook employee from finding out what his ex girlfriend's doing, or you know uh, the Google employee for checking up on his wife, or the the boss, or you know for to find out who's going to be you know who all the people were at that political rally that we don't like. You know, there's there's so many potentials for abuse for this data once it's collected. Yeah, it, it's absolutely true, and it's scary. Um, and it, you know that ties into what is another really important public conversation that we're having now about encryption uh, and what kind of uh, data security controls we as individuals and companies should be able to put in place and whether there need to be backdoors built into them. Uh, you know, this, this came up uh, a couple of years ago in a very public way after the San Bernardino shootings when mm-hmm. uh, the FBI asserted in what turned out to be a uh, very dubious public yes. claim. Uh, that um, that appears to be substantially false, that they couldn't get into the iPhone of the suspect uh, and so wanted to try to force Apple to uh, write new code that could break the encryption uh, and force uh, a way into those phones. Uh, and Apple uh, resisted that uh, to their great credit. Um, and one of their chief arguments, uh, in addition to legal arguments about how they actually, there was no legal authority the government had to, to force them, was a practical argument uh, about why it is so important to be able to build in strong security protections, including mm-hmm. encryption that can only be uh, be decrypted, accessed by the user, the owner of that device or that service. Um, and the you know the most compelling reason to me is that uh, you know government access is not the only way that uh, the only place that that could be trying to get into yeah. this stuff. It's hackers. It's you know hostile foreign nation states. Uh, it's, you know, jilted lovers who are hell bent on doing harm to someone. Uh, there are lots of good reasons why, uh, we want to very tightly control our data, uh, and in an age of devastating data breaches, uh, it should, you know, it only becomes more clear. Uh, and so, you know, we sometimes hear law enforcement saying, oh, you know, we, we're never going to be able to solve these important crimes in the future unless we have a backdoor into these, mm-hmm. uh, these secure data systems. Um, but once, once you build an exceptional access device like that that lets police get in whenever they want or whenever they have a court order letting them to, uh, there's no guarantee at all that the rogue corporate employee at Google or Apple won't also be able to get in or that, you know, a foreign... Uh, country that's trying to do espionage or a hacker network can also figure out that same way in. Uh, and so, you know, for our economic uh, power, for our, uh, our privacy concerns, uh, it's really important that we be able to, to secure our stuff and not just our physical items, but our digital data too. Yeah. And the other thing I, I think that people may not be aware of yet, but it's, it's probably going to become painfully obvious soon is that 
there are other companies that will have access to this data as well. For you know, Equifax was a huge um, problem last fall, and turns out Equifax is not just you know getting credit information; they're they're gathering all sorts of information. They're another data broker, like some of these other companies are. And when that information gets loose, um, once your uh, the argument I make is, once your private, you, you can get your stuff back. If someone steals your stuff you can replace that. You can't replace you. You can't replace your privacy. Once that is known, you can't expunge that from memories of people. So uh, that's why it's so much uh, more crucial. But you know, these are start, starting to come into play into other things too, like job applications, loan applications, um, college applications. I know that when I'm an interviewer for, uh, for my company, I, the first thing I do is go look at somebody's Facebook page. Mm-hmm. Um, when, and that's just the public, public part. I mean, I'm sure that private investigators and some of these other um, uh, there are other techniques for getting at some of this data that may not be available uh, in a public scene, but have been used to make decisions based on you, medical insurance, um, health insurance, life insurance. You know, if I can all of a sudden get access to a lot of your history and I know what your Google searches were and I know what you bought on Amazon, I might be able to make a discrimination that you're not a very insurable person. I'm going to raise your rates, right? There's there's all sorts of implications to this that are just just starting to surface. Yeah, and and the you know the number of data points that some of these data brokers. Uh, have are just stunning, you know, tens of thousands of of information points for every uh, or for most Americans. And that includes not not just things about what we do online, but increasingly what we're doing offline. Yeah. So you mentioned automated license plate readers earlier. These are uh, high speed cameras that can, you know, they're often used by law enforcement directly, like attached to police cars to look for stolen cars or other, you know, people where there's a law enforcement lookout. But there are also private companies that have installed huge networks of these around the country on, on you know, walls of businesses and uh, stationary light poles, et cetera. And so they take photos of every license plate that goes by, they geotag it and timestamp it and feed it into a database. Uh, and then that's, you know, that's very attractive to, uh, you know, not just to repo companies, for example, that want to find a yeah. car that they want to repossess, but you can imagine to an insurance company that's trying to figure out... Yeah. Uh, you know, or you say you, uh, you're a regular exerciser, but boy, we never see your, your car near the gym. Uh, so, so that's an extra $250 on right. your, your monthly premium, um, or to any number of other, uh, companies, um, stores increasingly, uh, retail stores, uh, have devices that are recording the, uh, the unique Wi-Fi signatures yep. of phones that are there or the Bluetooth signatures right. so that, you know, partly for their own uses. So they uh, can tell, you know, who's a recurring customer and what part of the store do they linger in? And then they can mm-hmm. maybe send a coupon to your, your, uh, through advertising or to an app you've downloaded. Um, but once they have that stuff, it's pretty attractive to them yeah. to package it and resell it uh, up the line to a data broker that will have lots of other clients uh, because, you know, without regulation, uh, it's, uh, it's going to be a rare company that's going to, out of the goodness of its own heart, decide <laughs> to forgo some opportunity to monetize people's data. Okay. So I, I, I hope that we've sufficiently lit everybody's hair on fire <laughs> with, <laughs> with, with all the, uh, the paranoia. I mean, it, it sounds like tinfoil hat stuff, but it's just, and maybe one it, it used to be, but it's, it's just not these are real concerns now. So I always like to wrap up with some sort of hope, some, something, something, or at least a call to action. What, what is it we can tell people to do either technologically and, and, or, you know, from an activism standpoint, you know, what can people do to assert their rights to, uh, to claw back some of their, their data and protect themselves. If you had to give us some top tips for people on, on how to get involved and, and how to protect themselves, what would you say? Yeah, so I'll say two things. So, you know, there are technological tools that people 
can use if they want to protect their privacy. And some of them are actually very easy to use now. So, uh, for example, there are um, texting and chat apps like Signal that you can mm-hmm. just easily download onto your smartphone. But you send t- uh, text messages, essentially, uh, or uh, similar communications that are encrypted end-to-end uh, that only you and the person on the other end can see. So someone who's you know, tapping into the phone network, which is not very hard to do, mm-hmm. it turns out, um, will only see a bunch of random letters and numbers uh, if they try to intercept that. Um, and there, there are other tools that people can use to provide some privacy, but, um, but do not address you know, all of these problems we've been talking about by any means. Um, but then there, there are political solutions that um, people should get behind. And I think one of the most exciting and powerful efforts that I've seen in recent years uh, is a campaign that the ACLU has been very active in, as well as a number of organizations from across the political spectrum, to get local governments, so city councils and county boards of supervisors, to adopt laws that say that whenever police want to buy or start using a new surveillance technology, they have to get uh, they have to get the buy-in of the public and of elected officials. Hmm. So they they should have to disclose their plans to the city council and to the public. They should have to uh, draft and publicize an, a privacy impact statement uh, that will talk about what data they're going to collect, how long they're going to keep it, uh, what the risks are, and what their perceived benefits to law enforcement are. Uh, and then they should have to get you know after this period of debate and disclosure get explicit approval from the city council. Hmm. Um, and, and this is, you know, I think it's an exciting uh, effort because it's it's technology independent. You know, often as an advocate, I'm in the position of playing catch up. Um, and with surveillance technologies, that's actually virtually always the case yeah. because they're usually adopted in secret yeah. uh, and law enforcement tries to keep it secret for <laughs> as long as possible because, you know, it's it's a lot easier to use a thing that's not controversial and that you're not having to defend in court or in public or before lawmakers. Uh, and the best way to do that is just not to tell anyone what you're doing. Uh, and then by the time defense attorneys or legislators or members of the public in general or journalists figure it out, it's five years, 10 years down the line. This stuff is already entrenched and we've missed the opportunity to have an informed public debate about whether it's even a good idea in the first place. Uh, so, uh, you know, these efforts are ongoing in a number of places around the country, from big cities to small towns. And uh, and I think, you know, concerned listeners um, could try to get involved in pushing their local elected officials to to adopt this this what I think is a really reasonable but but also evergreen uh, protection. Yeah. And I think that's got the great idea. And I, it's obviously with, with the kind of the federal gov- government seems to be so gridlocked now that that a lot of the. The places where innovation is happening and, and policy seems to be at the local level. Um, so, yeah, that's a great idea. Thanks. Uh, Nate, this was a great discussion. Uh, thanks so much for all your insights. Uh, this is troubling and yet eye-opening. And hopefully, that again, the, the whole point of these kind of conversations is just to make people aware these things are going on so they could be informed citizens uh, and get out there and, you know, and vote at the ballot box and with their wallets uh, where, you know, where possible to, you know, support privacy and to not support you know, some of these efforts to really undermine uh, our rights. So thank you very much for coming and talking to us today. Thanks so much. I enjoyed our conversation. And that's going to wrap up our show this week. Thanks again. Big thanks to Nate Wessler for coming on and explaining the details of these issues. It's 
thorny issues, but stuff we've really got to grapple with. And the law is just not keeping up with reality. Um, the technology is moving so fast and the laws just aren't. And there are some, you know, obviously good things to be said about that. We don't want to be creating regulations and laws willy nilly, but obviously there are some serious deficits here uh, in our current law with protecting privacy in this digital age. Uh, you know, the amount, the sheer volume of data that is now available to law enforcement um, and corporations, of course, uh, is just absolutely staggering. And we have got to come up with some ways to protect this data um, or we're going to be in some big trouble. This whole Facebook thing that's been going on lately, this is just the tip of the iceberg. Um, and, of course, once it starts treading on our civil rights, once we start talking about Fourth Amendment issues and how much of this data is available uh, to law enforcement without proper warrants or without proper focus, um, that that's a key subject. And I'm so glad to have Nate on here to explain all the details to us. As always, if you're liking what you're hearing, uh, I'd love your support. You can go to patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com. Uh, you can search for Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons there, and you can uh, take a look at my ongoing efforts and multiple, on multiple levels to try to uh, bring this information to as many people as possible. Um, of course, you can always get the book, Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons, at Amazon.com. Uh, you can sign up for my newsletter if you want to get a little bit of this every couple of weeks. Uh, I've got a bi-weekly newsletter. You can sign up for it, firewallsdon'tstopdragons.com. And uh, there's blog articles there as well and all sorts of other great resources um, if you're worried about privacy and security. Uh, check that out. So I will see you again next week. And until then, as always, folks, don't get caught with the drawbridge down. Take care, everybody.